flush on her cheeks. Or perhaps it was the flush of triumph. Mr. Porterman is here early, she said. Splendid, I said, running my hands through my hair, staring around at the walls as though I had never seen them before. You look... I have never known Tina to suffer a loss for words. I was concerned. I knew I felt shaken. How bad did I look? A bit off. Beside yourself, actually, she said. Tina would always choose a somewhat bookish phrase in place of a more normal, idiomatic choice of words. So I gathered that I looked merely rattled, out of breath. Tina was the only person I knew who said, in future, instead of in the future, and even, from time to time, on holiday instead of on vacation, in reference to one of Orr's frequent absences. She had been born in Van Nuys, but a couple of years before had spent a few weeks at a summer program in Oxford. She was attractive enough to figure in an amazing number of my clients' erotic dreams. And Mrs. Bird wants you to telephone her. She referred to my wife in this formal way, but I did not really mind. A touch of formality makes routine palatable. What did worry me was that Cherry never called me here. She never even called home to tell me she might be late. I had taken to believing that the telephone did something to my voice that rendered it unpleasant to Cherry's ear. Is Orr around? He doesn't want to be disturbed. It occurred to me that I hadn't seen him much, if at all, in recent weeks. He was often traveling. But I caught Tina looking away from me, and I should have guessed that she knew something. From my office I called the veterinarian. The receptionist there seemed to have taken a dislike to me. Doctor is still preparing Belinda for surgery. Could she call me and tell me how it went? Doctor will have to be the one to decide that. I will certainly tell him you called. My wife did not answer the phone. Something must be wrong. I was glad she hadn't answered because I didn't need another worry. But I was reaching the point at which I was saturated with emotions and desperately needed to go for a long walk. My first client for the day in truth, my only client scheduled, was smiling wanly in the waiting room. Your practice, I told myself, is a little too thin at the moment. It was not my fault. My office partner, who co-leased the office and shares the waiting room with me, had been on local television five times in recent months, or was a celebrity. I could not compete with him. But as I sat listening to Porterman, a man who had lustful desires toward his eleven-year-old daughter, I had to force myself to concentrate on his monotone. He was a nuclear physicist with the University of California. He had explained to me once about quarks and charm, a fascinating forty-five minutes before I remembered that he was paying me and that I had no right to use up his time in my ignorance. We had both agreed months before that a man in real danger of molesting his daughter would not have sought professional counseling, and, 
since no one can keep the mind clear of unpleasant desires every moment of the day, that he was to be commended for his desire to be a protective father and to assume responsibility for his lust. Thus encouraged, he had decided to undertake an in-depth study of his dream life. I welcomed this. Dreams fascinate me. But Porterman had dreams about buying a new suit at Macy's, of choosing frozen spring rolls at Safeway, of starting a subscription to the Examiner. His dreams were like those films we had to watch in high school, legendarily dull films produced in remote decades when everything was in black and white, and everyone wore baggy clothes and had, on reflection, baggy faces. Films on the sandy strata that made Idaho's famous potato the tuber king. Films on the birth of the economy with faded camera conscious.